The old pilot's plain tales, good bits and bad, or perhaps the curate's egg. Something a little different this week. I'm pretty lucky to have flown a number of aircraft types that have all made an impression on me one way or another, and although there are plenty of you out there who will have a great deal more in your logbooks, I hope that you allow me to indulge myself as I recall a little about each of those I've flown. I have no intention of covering everything, but I thought I might just uh, take a few small nuggets from each that are stuck in my mind. Something that I thought was particularly neat, or perhaps a bit annoying. I want to start by talking about one of my dad's aircraft, the Vickers Viking. The old man flew it for many years all over Europe, the Middle East, and down through Africa. He only had one major incident, and that was in 1953, a year before I was born. Getting airborne out of Blackbush, bound for Nice, he noticed oil streaming from one of the engines. The servicing engineer had left the oil filler cap loose and it had come off, allowing the precious lubricant to leak away. With a full passenger load and a failing engine, he elected to return to the field. When the engine started to complain, he shut it down, feathering the prop, but with only a very marginal single-engine performance, he didn't quite make the runway, impacting on unprepared ground 150 yards short. His was the only serious injury as he broke his arm, and his crew got all the passengers out safely before the aircraft caught fire and burned to destruction. A year later, I came into the world, and I probably heard the story from him when I was very young. It upset me that the Vikings broke my daddy's arm, and I never forgave them. I started my reel flying in gliders, and there were only two that I became familiar with. The Slingsby T-31 Tandem Tutor had all the gliding characteristics of a brick, but sitting one behind the other had a distinct advantage. On the rare occasions when we staff cadets were allowed to fly together, it was by far the best machine to play the swapping seats game. Remembering that off a 1,000 foot winch tow, and with a sink rate of well over 3 feet a second, we would only have a few minutes to get this done, the rear cadet would unstrap and climb out of his cockpit. Stepping forward onto the front strut, he could then grab the stick in the front cockpit whilst that cadet climbed out of the other side and moved back into the rear cockpit. Once inside and in control, then the cadet still hanging onto the strut could clamber into the front seat. The biggest problem was not giving the game away when the CFI demanded angrily what had been going on. Why, nothing, sir, with angelic expressions being the order of the day. The side-by-side T-21 Zedberg was by far my favourite, though. With its big, deeply cambered wing, it was steady and stately, having the looks and feel of a classic motor launch that cruised around the sky. I did buy PPL on a generic Cessna 150 Aerobat. That aircraft made very little impression on me, except, as you might recall from an earlier plane tale, when one tried to salami slice me after I straightened the prop and the engine started in the middle of a hangar. I felt the cockpit looked more like a car with cheap plastic instruments than an aircraft. I hated the way it creaked and groaned as the plastic interior bent and rubbed in flight, but the great thing about it 
It looked after me when I flew my first solo. The first powered aircraft that I actually flew myself was the de Havilland Chipmunk. The first time would have been around 1968 as a young air cadet, and the last time was after I joined the RAF. What was there about it to love? Well, to be absolutely blunt, not much. It flew and was, with a lot of patience, aerobatic, but other than that I had little regard for it. The hole in the back that we cadets were consigned to always stank of someone else's puke. I think the air-experienced flight pilots had all convinced themselves that the only thing cadets wanted to do were aeros. But as a young lad who could hardly see over the side and with no view in front at all, it was like being rolled down a hill in a barrel. You had absolutely no idea which way was up or when it all might end. All I wanted to do was be given control and get a chance to fly this smelly, noisy, rattling aircraft for a bit. That was the greatest thrill of all. A few other memories linger, wearing our parachute straps so tight that we couldn't stand properly and we had to waddle out to the flight line like ducks. Nobody ever taught me how to read the old-style P8 magnetic compass properly and to this day it remains a bit of a mystery. It sat on the floor behind the stick and between the rudder pedals. I could hardly see it, let alone line up the grid with the dim yellowed markers swimming around in the bowels of the device. The Jet Provost was a workhorse trainer. Its Viper engine gave it rather less performance than the piston-powered Spitfire that lived on a pole as our gate guard at the base entrance. And although the instrument panel looked jam-packed and confusing, it really only contained a handful of instruments. It had an engine firelight and a whole six amber warning indicators. The hardest bit was cranking the canopy open and shut with a wheel attached to a bicycle chain. That was the student's job. I remember that all our instructors had old Mark I flying helmets, which were little more than a fiberglass cover over the old soft canvas inners that held the electrics. We poor students were fitted with the big, heavy and bulky Mark II helmets with their constricting webbing and enormous visor system. No wonder my neck muscles grew several sizes. The fallen gnat was a darling. Tiny, sleek, powerful, fast and sophisticated, it was a real pocket rocket. I loved that I could put my arm around the nose and that when I sat in the front my feet were only inches behind the start of the nose cone. It felt like a Formula One racing car and had a pitot-static tube several feet long sticking out of the nose that always looked like a spear that we might try and stick into other aircraft. The instruments were very modern for the time, and were the same type that was found in the Buccaneer and Lightning. The AI had a flight director that could be coupled to the ILS, and the TACAN beacon receiver had an offset computer that allowed the input of a radial and bearing to effectively move the centre of the beacon to any convenient place. The TACAN could also be used to couple two or more aircraft together to give each other a DME range, very useful during cloud formation penetrations in trail. The gear all had forward-facing doors attached to the undercarriage legs that lowered as they did. This meant that the gear doors could double as air brakes when partially extended. 
There was so much packed into this tiny airframe, including a very sophisticated artificial feel, trim and control system called the Q-Gear, which compensated for the many longitudinal trim changes that occurred and kept the very short control column close to the centre position, allowing full deflection in all phases of flight. As a student, having to learn the intricacies of the Q-gearing, the datum shift, the Hobson motor, the scissor restrictor and Cam-K, which altered the stick position relative to the all-moving tail plane, dependent on Mach, airspeed, altitude, centre of gravity and centre of pressure movement. The ground school famously had a whole section on this engineering marvel, including one question which was to name all 18 major components of the Hobson motor. The ejector seat was a one-off as well. Built by the aircraft manufacturer rather than Martin Baker, it was nicknamed the Folland Humane Killer and had a single arming lever that stuck into the back of the neck when safe. The Hawker Hunter was a mighty jet, a world speed record holder and frontline fighter, but by the time I flew it, it had been relegated to the role of weapons trainer. It was a sleek and beautifully crafted fighter, from its dog-tooth leading edge to the Sabrinas that collected spent Aden cannon shells. It looked as good as it flew. Compared with the beautifully crafted exterior, the cockpit could be a bit of a nightmare. The switch layout looked like it had been designed by Jackson Pollock, and no cockpit looked exactly like another. Peeling, hand-painted script often marked the switches, and some were completely anonymous. We stuck by the golden rule, move the shiny ones and leave the dusty ones alone. There were two common mistakes made by new pilots when they climbed into the single-seater for the first time. After takeoff, when the power was pulled back to a cruise setting, the bleed valves of the engine clattered, and nobody realised just how loud they were. Many a student turned straight back to land, thinking their engine was about to come apart. The other thing was the noise the nose wheel made after retraction as it slowed down to a stop in the bay just under the pilot's feet. One of my friends declared a mayday, punched his tanks into the sea off the end of the runway and flew a turn back, thinking his mighty Avon was about to give up the ghost. The gun sight had a little camera over it and whilst flying a low-level transit to the range to practice rocketry, gunnery or bombing, we had to film cytobursts with the gun sight set to zero onto each film cartridge so that our instructors could analyse the results properly. The film cassettes only lasted a few seconds, so we would carry a bandolier of them around our legs and getting each one into the camera, shoot a quick burst and get it back into the bandolier again was a task that should have seen more of us splattered into the Welsh mountains. Particularly as we often dropped them and then had to invert the aircraft at low level to get them to fly up onto the canopy for retrieval. The Phantom had some lovely design tricks. I used to delight in the way that, as you climbed out and down the side of the fuselage, when your foot kicked open the door hiding the second footstep, it would rest on a little mechanical latch. As you put your weight on it, you heard a satisfying double clunk, and two more steps would telescope out of the fuselage for you to climb down. Rather than on other jets, all our oxygen, anti-G hoses and electrics that we wore were condensed down to a single row of connections fitted to a quick release plate that hung by our side. 
instead of having to fit multiple pipes and cables when we strapped in, a single click ensured that everything we wore was connected to the aircraft. Of course, there was nothing subtle about the cockpit of the Phantom. No smooth lining, no padding, insulation or cable tidies. It was easy to bang a funny bone or knee and end up half crippled. There was no space to put in the thing, and if we were landing away, we would traditionally cram clothes all around the back of the ejector seat. It was always easy to tell a visiting fighter crew from their crumpled shirts and crushed hats. We generally used the brake chute to slow the aircraft on landing. You don't need a big capable brakes on an aircraft carrier, so they weren't great at stopping the mighty beast on a normal runway. However, if it meant the pilot had to pack his own chute, it would only be used as a last resort. Cramming that big nylon parachute into the tiny tailbox was a trick that we were taught but rarely mastered. Of course, there were some niggles. Towards the end of its life, it was hard to keep fully serviceable, so it was common to walk out as a four-ship, start as a three, taxi as a pair, and get airborne alone. The radar was a genius device when it worked, but even back then, the main cure for ailments was to turn it off, wait a bit, and try again. Or, as a last resort, the nab would pull it out and slam it back into its stowage, hoping to kick it back into life. The Hornet, however, being straight off the factory floor and a generation or two further up the evolution tree, rarely fell over. It had more delightful tricks up its sleeve than anything I have flown before or after. Apart from having to be a concert piccolo player on the throttles and stick, it turned like a demon and climbed like an angel. A turn of the head and you could see between the fins. The radar was pure magic, the weapon layout clear and logical, the system integration made sense and, well, I think you've got the idea. Of course, I would love to have had a couple more sparrows nested under the fuselage like the Strike Eagle and some more winders scattered around the place, but one could always give up a few wing stations to carry them. So there might have been some niggles, right? Well, the steps weren't as neat as the Phantom, as someone had to swing them down from under the left legs, the leading edge extension, for you to use, but then we would often just walk onto the wing and slide down a tank. The moving map display was, in the early models, a projected 35mm film strip, and occasionally you flew further than the map would go. It felt a bit weird falling off the known world and into uncharted territory, because, as we all know, here be monsters. I'm really scraping the barrel when I tell you that I really didn't like bitching Betty. I guess it was because she had generally bought bad news. Even if it wasn't to say... Engine fire left! Engine fire left! Or another major hiccup. It was usually a bingo call that meant we had to stop having fun and head for home. Going on to something like the Tornado F3 after that, it was a bit like climbing into a Boeing. Horrible. Too heavy with underperforming engines and that ludicrous wing sweep system that everyone had tried a generation before and given up on. Why we were building brand new jets this way, I don't know. The best thing to say about them is that they are just about gone now. They performed well enough in the mud-moving variant, but as a fighter, pah. I mean, who designed an engine control system that, as you shut the engines down and the generators fell offline, 
If the pilot turned off the batteries too soon, the uncontrolled engines could then reignite and would accelerate to destruction in a matter of seconds. Oh, there were two things I liked. You could power both gearboxes of one engine following a failure and the thrust reversers. Wonderful. They saved all that terrible brake chute packing. So on to Airbus. Well, what can I say apart from genius? So what genius decided not to have moving throttles and linked flying controls? I mean, seriously. Don't get me wrong, I think Airbus has got an awful lot right. The flight control system is near perfect and the autothrust is pretty damn good too. Uh, the flight management system is great and about the only hassle that we have is we can't scroll through a flight plan page by page. But not linking those flying controls was not their greatest moment. Neither was the cold left leg on the captain's side. There's a switch down there marked foot warmer but still my left leg freezes. However, I'd rather have a cold leg than no table. I mean it, Boeing. When I remind you that the reason for a huge yoke attached to a great big pole coming out of the floor was because a pilot had to move big heavy steel wires and needed a nice long moment arm to do the job, well, get with the programme. I guess the Airbus wipers could be a little better, but that's only because it's hard to get them to work properly in a 180 mile gale. Other than that, it flies like a dream, lands easily, is smooth and precise to manoeuvre, logical to operate in a great machine to move people safely uh, just down the road or halfway round the world. Well, that's a few of my loves and hates over many decades of flying. I trust I haven't upset too many of you, and if I have, then please write to the old curmudgeon and don't expect a reply. See you next week.